Good morning. How many of you would describe yourselves as big picture people? That is, you really need and want to understand the big picture before you dive into all the details. Anyone? Okay, a few. I'm that way. I have a hard time focusing on just individual details. If I don't understand why it's saying what it's saying in the Bible or, or anything, why it's here in the position it's in. So last week and this week, I have tried to give you the big picture idea of Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> and we did not get far. <laughs> Planned to cover 17 verses, and we made a stab at it. We covered one. But we did that because as I began to look into this and do the research for this sermon, I learned a whole lot more about the titles Messiah, Son of David, and Son of Abraham as they appear in the first verse. I'm going to assume that most of you are not as familiar with these titles and what they mean, just as I was not. So I want us to kind of quickly review last week, and then we're going to go forward. We saw from this first verse that Jesus has three very important titles. He has more than this, but the first, he is the Christ or the Messiah, the one God sent to pay the penalty for the sins of Jews and Gentiles so that we can be reconciled to God. If you think about it, having been reconciled to God it is the best present anyone could ever give to us, and God made that possible. He's the Messiah. Secondly, he's called at the very end of the verse, the son of Abraham. Jesus, I always thought that just meant he was a descendant of Abraham, same with son of David, that he's a descendant of David. But no, there's a lot more behind these titles. Saying that he is the son of Abraham really brings out all the more that Jesus came in order to provide salvation for all who will receive it. We looked at Genesis 12 last week briefly, and I encourage you, if you want to, to check it out in your Bible, or you can look at the screens. God is speaking to Abraham, giving him what's called the Abrahamic covenant. And in verse 3, it says, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I doubt Abraham fully understood what he was hearing. But we find out how that was fulfilled in the New Testament. We looked at Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. said, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, save, forgive the sins of the Gentiles by faith, it preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. God promised to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. Then we see in Galatians in the New Testament how that is fulfilled, that God blessed people by sending a Savior. So we saw that Jesus is the, fulfills a priestly role by providing salvation. In the Old Testament, there were three very important offices, prophet, priest, and king. No one fulfilled all three but Jesus could and did. Secondly, we saw that Jesus is the son of David. 
We looked in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it says in just uh, verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So as son of David, what we learn in the New Testament is that Jesus fulfilled this, that Jesus will one day come to earth and he will rule the world and uh, all the nations, just as it was promised beforehand to David. And we see that in Luke chapter 1. Notice again the words throne, kingdom, and forever. 2 Samuel 7 verse, excuse me, Luke chapter 1 verse 32. And the Lord will give to him, this is the angel of the Lord speaking to Mary about her son, son she's expecting, Jesus. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So we see as the son of David, Jesus is that promised king. <clears throat> Last week we saw the big picture items. First, I said that Jesus' genealogy reveals that he's the promised Messiah, and it reveals that by the fact that he fulfills these three most important roles, priest, king, and prophet. Then I said as major point number two, that Jesus' genealogy also demonstrates God's unchanging character, specifically his mercy, his judgment, and his faithfulness, and we'll look at these a little more closely in a moment. By the way, if you look at your genealogy, if you have your own copy of the Bible with you, I hope that your Bible divides those 17 verses into several different little paragraphs. I know the English Standard Version does. The King James does not. Uh, New American Standard, it does. But the way they set out a new paragraph is by bolding the verse number or the first word of a verse. So the New American Standard is a little harder to follow there. The NIV lays it out very well by just putting an extra space between the paragraphs. So whether your Bible has them broken down in divisions or not, I invite you to write this down. That the first division goes from verse 2 to verse 6a, to the middle of verse 6. There we see... Jesus' genealogy reveals God's mercy. How? Because we find there that God is willing to use sinners, sometimes even the worst of sinners, in the descendant line of his own son, Jesus. Now, most people would think if the Son of God is going to leave heaven, come to earth, certainly he should be in a family that doesn't have any or very many black marks, so to speak, on their reputation. But no, we see quite a few sinners listed, big sinners listed in these first few verses. I'm gonna, I have put in bold several of the women's names. I'm not calling them the bigger sinners because it's the men who uh, instigated the things that really call, created the sinful situation. But the women that I've highlighted and recall, women don't have to be put in a genealogy. So if they're included, there's a specific reason why. 
In verse 3, we see Tamar. Verse 5, Rahab. Verse 5, also Ruth. And verse 6, if you go to the end, it includes Bathsheba. Matthew has packed a whole lot into his genealogy, more than just meets the eye to start with. He could have just highlighted the matriarchs of the Jewish faith. The patriarchs were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their wives are known as the matriarchs, uh, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Instead, instead of naming these kind of famous people, well-looked-up-to people, he includes Rahab, who was a prostitute, Ruth, who was a foreigner that the Israelites just did not like, the people in Moab, which was on the east side of the Jordan River. We see that Bathsheba was the victim, really, of sexual abuse. There's just no other way of saying it. The Bible nowhere calls or holds Bathsheba responsible. Instead, David is definitely held responsible. David commits adultery with her, and then he even conspires to cause her husband to be killed in battle. David, in essence, has committed murder as well, and yet God still included him in the lineage of the Messiah. God has always been willing to use sinners in his plans, because if you think about it, what else does he have? (laughs) You know, we're all sinners, and so... I think it's wonderful, though, that he did include these people, these women, because that would catch the reader's eyes. And especially to a Jewish reader, they would then remember, yes, as great as David was, he committed adultery and even murder. Judah was the, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and it was through the, Judah's line that the Messiah ultimately came. Yet Judah lied to one of his daughters-in-law and put her in a very compromising situation. Second group of names goes from the middle of verse 6 to the end of verse 11. All of these people listed are kings. They served as kings in Judah in the southern tribes. And I have said here that the primary thing I see coming out of these verses, this section, is that God reveals his judgment when he needs to. Israel was God's special people, yes, but God does not tolerate sin from his own people, and especially not from leaders. Back then, kings. Not all these kings were evil. They were all sinners, but they weren't all evil. But as a group, they did not stop the people of Israel from committing probably what is the most serious sin of all, and that is idolatry. We know the first of the Ten Commandments, God said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And yet, idolatry really prevailed during the time of the kings, so much so that at the end, in verse 11, we see that... that this all culminated into a deportation to Babylon. What that means is 
Babylon invaded Judah in like 605, again in 597, again in 586 B.C., with the ultimate result that they came in, took the people who survived the war, and marched them into Babylon and forced them to live there. Thank God, 70 years later, a new king is in place, Cyrus, who was a Persian or a, a Mede, no longer was Assyria and Babylon in charge. But this guy, Cyrus, allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. And that's why I say that in the third section, we see God's faithfulness. In spite of the king's sins and the people's sins, and in spite of being sent out of their country by force, and a lot of deaths occurring at that time, nevertheless, God did not take back his promise to reveal and to give us a Messiah, a Savior. In spite of their sin, or because of their sin, he disciplined them. And in spite of their sin, he still fulfilled his promises. This brings us to verse 15, and it says, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ or Messiah. The word whom there is in the feminine uh, gender in Greek. And so what that means, is there's no question that the of whom does not refer to Joseph and Mary. It only refers to marrying. Consequently, we can draw the conclusion, which is correct, that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus although Mary was indeed his biological mother. We'll look at that a little bit more in just a few moments. We also will see, find out today that nevertheless, even though Joseph was in the kingly line and his heir, his descendants could and would eventually sit on the throne, it, was not, it did not come about in the normal way, in the normal way at all. Again, we'll see that in a couple minutes. Let's look at, a couple probably means 20, but let's look at Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, to, engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, which I think is interesting that the angel puts that part in there. You're a son of David, basically giving him a clue that, hey, something big is about to happen within the Davidic line. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, and this is what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
So verse 24, and Joseph woke from his sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, which is kind of an awkward phraseology. It works in Greek. doesn't work so well in English. I wish the translators here would have just added the words Mary as, because that's what's meant. He took Mary as his wife, but he knew her not. They were not intimate until she had given birth to a son. And he, that's Joseph, called that son's name Jesus. The notes that I have given you on the worship guide, they begin here. First of all, Mary, we find out Mary is pregnant. She is expecting. Right away, though, especially in the Greek, we don't see this in English, but in the original language, the words of Jesus Christ begin, verse 18. Of Jesus Christ, the birth happened this way. The, fact, the reason that it, it is awkward like that, that, the reason they put of Jesus Christ at the beginning is to emphasize it. To catch the reader's eye, to again say, wow, something major must be happening, to emphasize something about Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Verse 18 tells us a whole lot. Mary was engaged or betrothed to Joseph. Many of you are, have heard sermons on this before. You know that marriage or engagement at that time was different from the way we practice it in America. What happened was they had a two-step engagement or marriage. The first step was when the parents would get together typically and decide a man and a woman who they would essentially force to, to get married. And, um, but the wife's side had to be willing to promise that she was a virgin. In fact, typically one author I read said that typically the girls who became first engaged or when they became engaged first was right around the age of 12. But if it looked like they might, she might become an old maid, they would allow her to get married as late as 12 and a half. <clears throat> Jewish engagement was legally binding as a marriage. It's not. In our culture, you can get unengaged. Sure, it, it hurts a lot, but there's no contract along with it. Whereas in the first century, there was. There was actually a written contract of things that would be exchanged between the bride's family, the husband's family. <clears throat> and to end that at any stage required a document of divorce, even when they're just engaged. Well, Mary turns out to be pregnant. Obviously, Joseph can only reach one conclusion, and that is that Mary has been unfaithful to him. He could have gone as far as the Jewish law allowed, which was to have her publicly stoned to death. But he didn't. It says that Jesus, Joseph was a righteous man. He didn't want to make a spectacle. He didn't want to make a scene. He was willing to just write her the divorce decree, and go on with life. But in verses 20 and 21, before Joseph could carry out those plans, we see that an angel of the Lord tells Joseph, A, that he is to proceed with marrying Mary, B, that Mary has not 
been unfaithful, although it certainly looks like it. See, Mary has conceived instead because of the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't tell us how. We don't need to waste time speculating. Somehow, from heaven, God implanted a baby inside Mary. The angel also tells him, letter D, 3D, and Mary will give birth to a son. And uh, E, the angel tells Joseph, they're to name the boy Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means God saves or Yahweh saves. Most of the time, people name their sons after ancestors. There wasn't an ancestor named Jesus. So God gave them the specific name to use for this son. Point four, Isaiah 7, 14 is fulfilled through these events that a virgin will give birth to a son who will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. What that's saying is that in some special way, this child would embody the very presence of God. How? I, I don't think we'll ever fully understand. But I have decided not to dig into the details of that prophecy. There are many commentaries, even good websites that give you far more information than you probably want. But you can find the answer to understand that. Again, what I would rather do is give you the big picture. Before I answer the questions under point four there, I want to go ahead and give you point five, and that is that Joseph obeyed the angel, verses 24 and 25. He married Mary. <clears throat> Let me pause there for a second. I told you earlier that we would see how Jesus could be a rightful descendant of Joseph, even though he was not a biological descendant of Joseph. And I'm going to give you the answer, and it's going to sound strange. It's because Joseph married Mary. That won't make sense quite yet, but it will. <clears throat> you might say, well, wait. It doesn't say Joseph adopted Jesus. It only says that he took Mary as his wife. Matthew would not have had to explain this to first century Jews because they would have gotten it. They didn't need the details. If we're not careful, though, we will miss. In fact, I confess I have missed it all this time until I prepared for this message that the key was because Joseph married Mary. <clears throat> because what they knew then was that we don't, is that when a man married a woman who already had children, just the act and the fact of marrying her automatically meant all of her children were now adopted by that man. I don't mean the man simply was going to provide for their room and board. No, from that point on, they became his legal children in every sense of the word. And that's why Joseph although not the biological father of Jesus, Joseph is and always has been regarded correctly as Jesus' father in a human sense because 
he married Mary, who soon gave birth to Jesus. <clears throat> Facts. So when they got married, the children were all adopted. In fact, some rabbis taught from about this time that an adopted son's right to inherit was actually stronger than a man's own, at least supposed, biological children. Because a man may not always be certain of the fact that he's the father of the children. But when it came to adoption, that was so public and so well known that these rabbis could teach that being adopted is actually potentially put, putting a child in a stronger position than even being the biological child of a man. So because Joseph married Mary, Jesus became Joseph's sons with all the rights, all the privileges of the son of Abraham, son of David. There B tells us that they did not have marital relations until after Jesus was born and that out of obedience, Joseph named the baby boy Jesus. I put on a slide four more passages. I've broken down chapter two for you because what I understand chapters one, chapter two to be doing is, especially for today's sermon, is Jesus is fulfilling a prophetic role. He is, he fulfills the prophetic role by fulfilling various prophecies. See one here in Matthew 1, 18 to 25. You see the same pattern four times in Matthew chapter 2. Four times Matthew brings out something about an Old Testament fact or prediction, and then Matthew makes it clear how Jesus fulfills those. <clears throat> I raised two questions and um, in under number four, and I want to answer those last for a reason. First of all, is it spelled with an I or an E. In the Old Testament, it was spelled with an I. In the New Testament, spelled with an E. In the Old Testament, it's Hebrew. The Old, in the New Testament, they bring the equivalent of the Hebrew into Greek. It begins with an E. So either spelling is correct. Most modern Bible versions standardize the spellings of names. That is, if it's spelled one way in the Old Testament, they tend to spell it the same way in the New. The King James is one version that doesn't. And frankly, as you read through its genealogy, some of those names, because spellings could vary, and especially from one language to another, some of those names seem a bit hard to understand at first. Number two, why didn't they call Jesus Emmanuel as it looks like verse 23, 24, command him to? Well, the answer to that is that name in the Bible carries two different meanings. To us, it only carries one, your name that's on your birth certificate. To them, it carried an other possible meaning, and that was describing a person's character, maybe their reputation, their identity. And if we look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, I didn't put it up there, I don't think, but James preached on this a few weeks ago. Isaiah 9, 6 reads, 
His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Each of those titles reveals something amazing about the Messiah and are very much worth digging into and learning more about. But for my point, Jesus was never called those titles, even though it says his name will be called. And in fact, when you compare verse 21 and 23 and 25, the exact same verb is used, called, and the same word, name. Well, so how do you know when the Bible is giving you a title or something about a person's character and giving their actual name? Well, you just have to read the Bible and see what happens. Here's one in Genesis 2. Adam says, once the woman is brought to him, he says, this person at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. But the very next chapter, Genesis 3 verse 20 says, and the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And as the Bible goes on, she's referred to as Eve, not Woman, which probably made her happy. <laughs> well, I wanted to answer these questions, these two questions at the end for a big reason. And that is that they, especially the second question, ties in to the big, big picture that we get out of Matthew 1 and out of Matthew 2. And that is that when Jesus came, he embodied God with us. He was God with us. You may be thinking, well, that's all great, but that was 2,000 years ago. Yes, it was. But when he left and went back to heaven, what did he do? He said in John he was going to send the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And as Charles Stanley likes to say, the Holy Spirit was, we were told, we are told in the Bible, will be with you, in you, and upon you. That God is always with us. No, you can't see him. But part of that reason is God can't be confined to a vision. He's way too amazing for that. The name Jesus means, as I mentioned earlier, the Lord is salvation. And the name Emmanuel means God with us. And it dawned on me as I was preparing for this message, you know what? Those are probably the two most important facts that we need to know as we go through life. We need salvation, and we're thrilled that God has condescended to provide that through Jesus, the Lord saves. And that's all well and good for the sweet by and by, but what about the ugly now and now? That's a lot tougher to deal with. Some of you are going through illnesses or other situations, and you'd love to be joyful this season, but it seems like life just keeps knocking you down right now. We need the truth that God is with us every day. It's good to remind yourself that God is with you today. He, he never leaves our presence, if we are his child in a, in a 
fact, the Holy Spirit resides in us and in a more mysterious way is also, God is also always with us. As um, not a Christmas hymn says, but I want to encourage us to ponder anew what the Almighty can do, what the Almighty has done, and who this Almighty God is. Because many of us, most of us have been through many, many Christmases. We've sat in church. We've heard the sermons. But it's so easy to lose the big picture. And that is that God loves you and is willing to forgive you for your sins. And God is with you. Now you don't hear his voice or see him or he doesn't tap you on the shoulder. But he is with us. We can always speak to him through prayer. God hasn't promised to remove our problems. I kind of wish he would have, but he hasn't. As he decided how to run the world, he didn't consult with me. So as he decided how to run this world, he said he would not take the problems away, but actually do something much better. And that is be with us as we go through them. There is probably, again, you've heard this truth, God with us, maybe hundreds of times. But I just pray that you grasp it in a new and invigorated way today. God does love you. And whatever you're going through, he is with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For those two amazing truths that you love us so much, you provided salvation for all who will believe, and you love us so much that you're willing to go with us through all the turmoils of life. Father, I just pray you will help all of us grasp those two truths in a more profound way today and from this point on. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.